0: We live in a world of swirling ideas and conflicting values, gossip, lies, and half-truths, coming at us from every direction, the media, internet, Hollywood, radio, even our phones. It can be difficult to discern what the truth is, and with each passing day, we're losing voices willing to tell it. Welcome to The Chaplain's Chair, a thought-provoking podcast about religion, faith, family, and yes, even some politics sprinkled in from time to time. Chaplain care is soul care, and caring for your soul starts with telling you the truth. Whether it's our community, our family, our work, our marriages, or even our politics, I've in the Bible always offers sound guidance, truth, to help us deal with the many storms of life. And from my chaplain's chair, I try to speak the truth to your soul. So let's have a conversation you can relate to. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor FM. You can follow it on Facebook and the website, chair. And welcome again to this episode of The Chaplain's Chair. Today I'm going to be talking about men, Bible men, what the Word of God says about men. But before I get into that, I'm going to segue into that by answering a question I've I've gotten from several people. It's like, okay, Tim, what what kind of chaplain are you? Because the word chaplain carries a bunch of different understandings. You see chaplains at universities, you see chaplains at hospitals, you see chaplains at uh, hospice centers. I had a college professor years ago who was the chaplain of a major league baseball team. My background is military and law enforcement. I'm a chaplain in the law enforcement uh, area. And the difference between that and what you see in a hospital or a college or any of those other environments is that the people I deal with are used to dealing with the dirt of society, the ugliness of society. And it's, it's, a, difficult, it's a difficult place to minister because they see so many ugly things. And so that is the area that, that I come from. And you'll find that my study, or excuse me, my, my approach to Bible study is, is more polemical than it is apologetical. I'll just give you a couple of quick definitions. Polemical means you, you confront error. You go out there and you confront the things that are wrong, that there is this standard of, of right and wrong, uh, that you not only fight to impose the right, but you also you fight to oppose the wrong. And you'll find that a lot in the military chaplain environment. When I was in seminary. I was took a chaplaincy foundations course, and we read this book here. And it's called The Sword of the Lord. There's a couple of excerpts that I want to read from it just to kind of give you an idea of the kind of chaplaincy that I'm bringing with this podcast. It says, it may be precisely the chaos and terror that make the chaplain so important as a symbol that somehow, even in the midst of death and fear, there is meaning. There is no better place for that than the law enforcement environment. There's no better place for that than the military environment you know, to approach these things and confront this ugliness with some moral clarity and some understanding and, and the idea that there is still meaning in all of that madness. I, I had a, uh, a deputy sheriff one time that, that, well, he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God because he'd seen so much evil. And I said, you're a law enforcement officer out there fighting for good. If, if evil is proof that God doesn't exist, why isn't the existence of good, people like yourself, proof that he does? So the role of the chaplain is to embody courage, hope, and steadfastness uh, in the face of all of that alienation and destruction. You know, we look at a, an example of a chaplain in the Korean War. His name was, and he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And this is what was said about him. The first thing I want to make clear, wrote Lieutenant Ray Mike Dow Jr. of Father Capuan. He was a priest of the church and a man of great piety. But there was nothing ethereal about him, nothing softer, unctuous, or holier than now. He wore his piety in his heart. Outwardly, he was all GI. Tough of body, rough of speech sometimes, full of the wry humor of the combat soldier. In prison, whose inmates hated their communist captives with a bone-deep hate. He was the most unbending enemy of communism. And when they tried to brainwash him, he had the guts to tell them to the faces that they were liars. He pitied the Reds for their delusions, but he preached no doctrine of turn the other cheek. In an environment where, where moral clarity is so evident, there needs to be those voices that will speak just that. And my text today is going to be from Ezekiel, and this is what we're gonna we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about men, and so I want to go to Ezekiel chapter twenty-two. As always, I'm reading from the King James version, and I want you to follow along with the. From verse 23 to verse 31 and I'm, I'm going to read this here and Ezekiel writes and the word of the Lord came unto me saying son of man say unto her thou art the land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation there is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof like a roaring lion ravening the prey they've devoured souls they've taken the treasure and precious things they've made her many widows in the midst thereof her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things They put no difference between the holy and the profane, neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. And her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood, and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression, and exercised robbery, and have vexed the poor and needy, yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them, that should make up the hedge, and stand in the gap before me in the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. Now along with that, I want to go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to read what's written there by the Apostle Paul. Second Timothy 3, I'm sorry. Second Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, Truth breakers, despisers of them that are good, Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive s- silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what this text represents, as I'm going to go through this, is a complete and ecclesiastical, civil, and social breakdown. We go back to verse 25 and 26. Ezekiel talks about the prophets. He says they pretend to know the mind of God. They conspire to justify the sinful ways of men, and in so doing devour souls, leading to eternal ruin. They persecuted those who exposed them as counterfeits. Now take a look around today, and take a look at the men who profess to speak for God, and the things that they talk about. And a lot of those things are not given in the scriptures. If we move on, and I'm going to give you an illustration here in a second of of an article that, that I pulled up just this week to use for this podcast. But I'm going to continue first. The priests in those verses, they don't protect God's holy things. The fundamentals of the faith, the things the martyrs of old died for, no longer have any meaning. We have men in Christian pulpits today, that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They don't believe that Jesus was God They don't follow the customs of the Bible. They don't follow the laws of God And they influence others to do the same and they justify others who do the same. You know when he goes on and says that these These uh, these prophets justify the princes, you know, we have government officials that are going against the will of God and we have prophets all over the United States, telling them that it's perfectly okay. We have have prophets of God, preachers of God, men in pulpits, telling our politicians that abortion is okay, that some of these progressive political things that come about are okay, that men can be women and women can be men and men can give birth, etc. So when we look at these things, because of the behavior of the men of God, in this text, and even today, men speak ill of God. Well, Christians are no different than anybody else. You're just judging me, or any number of acrimonious things they want to say about the Christian Church or pastors, or especially pastors that are maybe quite famous, have big radio shows or, or big TV shows. You know, Christians are the priesthood now. We don't have Old Testament priests anymore. The, the priesthood in the New Testament is the individual Christian. The Christian needs to protect the holy things. And in this day and age, if they don't get the right teaching from the pulpit, they're not going to know what those are. I'm going to look at this study here that I found. And the title of this is, study finds 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. And that a spiritual awakening is needed in our pulpits. This is from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona University. Arizona Christian University, I'm sorry. Has found just 37% of Christian pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview. A study of 1,000 pastors found that just slightly more than a third of U.S. pastors hold a biblical worldview. The majority, 62%, possess a hybrid worldview known as Now, If you don't know what syncretism is, that is, your religion is a hodgepodge of various teachings. You might have a little bit of Hinduism sprinkled in there. You might have some Islam sprinkled in there. You might have Hinduism or Buddhism sprinkled in there, along with Christianity. You might put Jesus on the same tier as other teachers, uh, but he's not divine. He was just a he was deified later on. And that was one of the things from uh, that, uh, that famous book there, the Da Vinci Code, that, well, we didn't accept Jesus as divine until AD 300-something. That is patently false. That is not true. Do not get your biblical education from Hollywood or from a book. Now moving on to verse 27, it says about the princes. They were entrusted with authority. And entrusted with authority means to enforce the law, but they were the greatest lawbreakers, and they crushed and oppressed the law-abiding for dishonest gain. Do I have to point at Washington, D.C., or do you kind of get that just from listening to this? Most of the political leaders today are in it for dishonest gain. You don't have to go very far to find proof of that. So in verse 28, the prophets have said to have daubed them with untempered mortar. In other words, as I said a few minutes ago, they girded them up, they gave them uh, power, they gave them uh, political cover. They said, hey, God's okay with this. Don't worry about that. It's okay that if you, you abort children and you sell body parts, that's perfectly okay. God's okay with that. It's not life anyway. Or things like that. They're loyal to politics instead of the holy thing. So so the princes would, would save their reputation by saying the public good required it. Now, I wrote what I just read about 20 years ago. Now, this is a... a uh, a sermon I adopted for this podcast you hear that. Oh, it's for the public good. It's for the public good We'll move on to the social aspect in verse 29 that the people Responding to the example society said, you know if you can't beat them join them And there are those that abandon the fight because they don't think they can win You don't abandon the fight because you're gonna lose you fight for what's right, even if you may lose There's a lot of examples throughout history where people did exactly that so when we, when we look at that, it says in this text that nobody took a stand for righteousness. Nobody stood up for God. And God cried out for a man to make up the hedge and stand in the gap, to cover that breach in society that was allowing all of this turmoil and destruction to get into society. So it says God sought for a man. I find that for you because it's not man as in the biological sense. So we don't want to limit it to that. It comes from the Hebrew word is ish. It means champion, great and mighty, worthy. Webster's goes on and defines it as one possessing in high degree the qualities considered distinctive of manhood, courage, strength and vigor. Well, what's a gap? God wants a man, a champion, mighty man of valor to stand in that gap. Well, what's the gap? The gap is a breach or a breaking forth. Webster's defines it as a break in a wall or position, a breach in a line of military defense. Now, that's very, very crucial to understand, because if we look back at this, we see that God has given man the ability to protect his life, his family, his society by giving him prophets that would speak biblical truth, by giving him leadership that would follow godly example, and by giving him people that would follow the word of God and try to live by it. You know, the second president, John Adams, said the Constitution of the United States was written for moral men. Moral men. Men that would obey God. If they chose to obey God first, they wouldn't need a lot of laws. But moving back to this study, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, this data they used from, from the Barna Group. And they're asking various things of the, the church ministers. And we're up to 62% syncretic worldview, which is not biblical. You know, what we're seeing is, you know, pastors, they water down the gospel. It's not nice to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's not nice to say that, look, God expects you to repent of your sins and receive salvation in Jesus Christ. That's not popular to say today. So back to this man. And as I... Illustrated this just a second ago. Where, where are the gaps? What, what what is God talking about? What 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 are the gaps? Let me point out to a, uh, point you to a couple of things in society, and I think the first one is in our marriage, in our marriages. You know, marriage originated with God. Genesis two eighteen says, and the Lord God said, "It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him." Man's not complete without a spouse. That's God's design. You know, we want to rebel against God's design. We want to rebel against things like marriage. We want to rebel against, you know, clear definition of the sexes. We want to rebel against the clear societal uh, roles that God has given in the Scriptures. And we do that at our own peril. You know, it's a husband's responsibility to love his wife. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know, so that's pretty clear. We need to be willing to die for that marriage. We need to be willing to die for that spouse. Faithful. That's that's a man. A man stands in front of his wife and family, and he faces danger. You know, this idea, once we get married, uh, that we can be, oh, let's call it pluralistic, that we can participate in open marriages, that we can have affairs, that we can uh, entertain any sort of lust or sexual deviancy. You know, Proverbs 5, 18 to 20 says about marriage, husbands and wives, says to the husband, let your wife be as the loving hind in the pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravaged with a strange woman and embrace the woman of a stranger? Or excuse me, embrace the bosom of a stranger. What other woman has earned the right to your affection? You stop and think about what a wife has done, born your children, managed your house, in my household, my, my wife handles most of the administrative duties. She handles all of the money. What other woman has earned my affection other than my wife? No one. You know, we have a an issue with uh, pornography today, and it's so, so easy to get to. You know, one of the things I, I want to say about that is that is not what healthy sexual relationships look like. For anybody that's ever been in a good marriage, that that is not what good, respectable women behave like. And it's not, it's not a measuring stick, if you will, of what your intimate relationship with your wife should look like. Not even close. And that leads me to the next point where respect, you know, entertaining those kinds of things, you know, what a lack of respect that is for your wife and her affection for you. And, and what does that say to her? First Peter 3, 7 says, likewise, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. As another week of vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Your wife is God's creation or God's child. God has an active interest in how you treat her. Don't think for one second that you're going to get away with mistreating your wife. And intimacy in a marriage is a voluntary act of submission out of love and respect. It is not what you see in the world of pornography. We need to be honest about that. A man is to is, is to be a provider. And I'm going to say some things here that, that maybe people haven't thought about. But it says in 1 Timothy 5.8, If any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own home, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Man's to work and provide. Now, this is America. You know, we have a lot of people that, that are able to collect uh, disability. They go on disability for any number of reasons. Now, I'm going to point out something. You know, the state of Maine... And the United States government is not the final arbiter on whether or not you're able to work. God is. That's going to be a conscience issue, and you're going to have to decide for yourself. There are people who say, well, you know, I was in construction and I hurt my back. I can't work anymore. Really? Is that really true? Can you do a job that doesn't require manual labor? Can you retrain yourself to do something else? You know, God does not consider sitting back and receiving a handout as work. And if, especially if that's not meeting the needs at home. And so you need to really ask yourself and you need to go to God and say, am I able to work? Is this disability justified? It's a really important thing. The government may say you can't work and God may feel differently. And God's opinion is what matters. So you need to think about that further. If you're not making ends meet with one job, then work two. the Old Testament work week. I know we have labor unions in the last hundred years or so that have come in and said, well, 40 hours a week and time and a half after that. And that's fine. You know, again, that is a legal standard that society has come up with. But is it a biblical standard? In the Old Testament, the work week was six days, sunrise to uh, sunset or 12 hours a day, 72 hours a week. If you're not getting it done with one job of 40 hours, maybe you need to work, too. I have a job, luckily, that provides me with overtime so I can work more than 40 hours a week. But if I was not able to make ends meet with one job, I would work too. And I think the biblical mandate is the man is to be the provider. The man also has a responsibility to see to it that his wife is in the faith. First Corinthians 14.35, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. And I think the husbands and the wives need to get around the word of God and study it together. And I think the man, is, as the Bible illustrates here, is to take the primary lead on that. And I know that's not popular today with, old oh, women's lib and all this other stuff. But the biblical model is the man is to take the lead in the home. That doesn't mean he makes his wife a slave. And I hate it when it's caricatured like that, because that's not what the Bible teaches at all. A man is to, in cooperation with his wife, lead his household to live in submission to the will of God in the revealed word of God. How about the gap in our families and in our children's lives? You know, We have a lot of things going on. And if you don't understand the spiritual warfare in our society today, then you need to wake up and take a look at it. Take a look at the school systems. Take a look at what the school systems and society are trying to teach your children, men. They're trying to teach them sexes don't matter. They're trying to teach them that work is a bad thing. They're trying to teach them that parents responsible for their children the schools are. They are trying to systematically dismantle all the values that you taught them and not just that you taught them but those values that you received from your father and your grandfather before him and your great great grandfathers etc before that. Two thousand years of western civilization they're trying to undo. They're after your kids, they're after your families. You have certain government officials that are telling kids to rat on their families, to turn on their families. I I take calls every now and again in criminal justice where parents have their children call 911 on them because they took their tablet away, or they took their cell phone away, or they wouldn't take them to where they wanted to go, or they wouldn't let them hang out with someone they wanted to hang out with. Where do you think they get that sense of rebellion? They get it in the schools. They get it from the philosophy that gets into the school system. You don't have to take my word for it. Go ahead and look it up. So what's the father's responsibility? Again, back to the responsibility to teach God's word. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is the responsibility of men to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That means teaching the Bible, teaching the word of God. If you're a Christian, could I tell that if I walked in? Would anybody be able to say, that? oh, I know for sure that man is a Christian by the way you live, by the way uh, you act, by the decisions that you make? We need to discipline our kids, too. That's not a popular thing today. I read a, because uh, I'm a chaplain in, in law enforcement, and, and of course I have military background, so I might be a little bit crassier, but I saw a meme this week that said, you know, the ass-whooping generation is a whole lot better disciplined than the time-out generation. And, you know, there's some truth to that. And there's a biblical mandate for discipline, and it says in Proverbs 13:24, He that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him be times. That means often. Teaching your kid discipline is not abuse, and sometimes it has to involve pain. Did anybody really ever learn anything that didn't involve pain in life? How did you learn not to touch something hot? You got burned. How did you learn not to go within a leash area of a dog? You got bit. How did you learn it was a good idea to wear a seatbelt in the car? Maybe you got into an accident and you experienced a lot of pain that could have been avoided by wearing a seatbelt. That's what the Bible says. Chasing your children. Chasing your children. Discipline them so that they can obey people that have authority over them. And that includes society, by the way. This goes on and says that disciplining your children delivers them from hell. So there is... An eternal consequence to not disciplining children if they won't submit to your authority they won't submit to society's authority and if they want to submit to society's authority they're not going to submit to God's authority and if they don't submit to God's authority then they're going to reject the promise of Christ so it says here would not withhold not correction from the child for if thou beatest him with the rod he shall not die thou shalt beat him with the rod and shall deliver his soul from hell and that's what the Bible says And I don't mean abuse. I mean discipline. And there's a difference. It says here, do it while they're young because there's hope. Proverbs 19, 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. I see a lot of parents that want to avoid discipline because the kids get upset. They cry. I get it. I disciplined my kids. It broke my heart every time they cried. I don't think I had to do much discipline after age five. Because it says here to do it while they're young. And, of course, discipline helps them train their mind to understand boundaries and limits. To understand the boundaries between right and wrong. And the last thing that fathers need to do with their children is you need to love them. Genesis 22:2, 2 He said, take now thy son, thy only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Now, a lot of kids don't get it. In the criminal justice system that I've been in for 30-plus years, most of the men I deal with have no dads. Or they have very abusive dads through substance abuse or Whatever. They didn't get disciplined the way the Bible says. They got beat because dad was upset and drunk and didn't want to have to deal with his kids in a responsible biblical way. How about our communities? What are men supposed to do in our communities? You know, there are certain understandings of what men should be doing. And we're going to look at a a few of those. I have got uh, to speak against sin speak against sin you know we're told we can't go out and, and speak against certain things this this woke this woke path we're on lately if you say a man cannot be a woman society ridicules you cancels you makes fun of you this says to speak against sin again in the book of Ezekiel chapter 3 17 to 19. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I made you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and you give him not warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood shall I require at your hand. We have a responsibility to go in our community and speak righteousness. And don't care whoever it upsets. I look at some of these school board meetings and I look at the teachers and I look at the school board members, they get really, really upset because somebody stood up and advocated for their kids. The Bible says to do that and don't be afraid of what they do. That's why it says God is seeking a man, a champion, a warrior. This takes guts. It takes courage. The Bible's clear about that. God is not saying it's going to be easy. God is saying it's going to be difficult. But I need a man to stand there. I need a man to stand in this breach. Another thing we're supposed to do in our communities is pray for our leaders. You know, I'm probably one of the worst at this. I'll indict myself. I don't always pray for my leaders. I currently do not like the current president. I have to pray for God's will. I I have to confess I, I do not like the man. I have to confess that I do not want to submit to his authority. But I also have to understand that my responsibility as a Christian man in society is to pray for him. It was the same thing with Barack Obama. I didn't like him either. There were a lot of things about President Trump I didn't like. I liked a lot of his policies, but I wouldn't want the man alone in a room with my wife. You had to, you had to pray for that man, and it's been hard. But you have to drag yourself to do it. It says in First Timothy two, chapter one. Uh, excuse me, First Timothy chapter two, verses one through three. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, that's for leadership, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all. Godliness and honesty for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior And like I said, I'm as I'm as guilty as anyone It it doesn't say here to pray for the people that you like It specifically says to pray for the people that you don't like The text doesn't say pray for conservatives The text doesn't say pray for Christians. It says pray for all of them. You know, there's there's a verse here In Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1. It says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. No man And I believe this biblically. No man is beyond the reach of Almighty God. I don't care how evil you think they are. No man is beyond the reach of God. And so we need to take the time to pray for these leaders, as hard as it may be. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't always like to do that. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, as much as we hate to admit this, and Christians don't want to say this, oh, the election was stolen, or whatever excuse they they want to use, the Powers that be are ordained of God. Joe Biden is president of the United States because God put him there. Donald Trump is president of the United States because God put him there. Barack Obama was president of the United States because God put him there. George Bush, Bill Clinton, we go back all the way to the beginning. None of those men get to that position without God signing off on the authority. That's a biblical fact. And we may not like it. and We may not understand why, but that is a biblical fact. We cannot argue that. We also, some of them will have to be involved in our government. This is difficult for me, too. I was an elected official. I ran for office four times. I won once. And getting into the trenches can be ugly. It can be tiring. It can be exhausting. It doesn't mean you have to run for office, but it does mean that you have to be involved somehow. Go to a school board meeting. At the very least, go vote. At the very least, send emails to your elected legislators about what you think they ought to vote for. At the very least, we need to do that. You know, the Bible gives us a couple of really good examples of of Joseph and Daniel who were high government officials. I mean, at the right hand of the leadership and the world powers at the time, because God put them there, and the positive influence they had on the Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. This is going to take us to the last gap that needs to be filled, and that's the one that's in our own life. And that's that's a gap that only Jesus can fill. And without Jesus, we can't expect to fulfill any of these gaps. One of the difficult things about being a Christian man is that, We're busy. We work. We're tired. We delegate a lot of things to people that we probably shouldn't, like primary responsibility for education is still in the house, even though you have to send them to school. You better be checking what they're learning in the public school system. You better be checking what they're learning in Sunday school. As I pointed out in that article a little while ago, even in Sunday school, they're not being taught the fundamentals of the faith. Do not delegate the responsibilities God gave you for your children to someone else. God is going to hold you accountable for that. And men, we have a biblical defined role and responsibility in our society, in our families, in our lives, in our governments. You know, by and large, take a look at America. A lot of men are shirking it. A lot of men have fallen short. A lot of men are not meeting their responsibilities. You know, that, the same could be said of me. You know, I've checked out of politics, you know, as far as getting involved at the, at the elected official level. I, I think about that every now and again, that I, that I should, you know, continue to get involved and that I should uh, continue to advocate. And like anybody else, I'm tired. But you know what? It's a matter of, of doing what God said I need to do because it's the right thing to do, even if I may not lose. We may never turn America around, folks. I, I hate to say this, but we, we may never turn America around. And I, and I will say this before I sign off on this episode today. If you are looking for Donald Trump to save the United States, you're looking at the wrong person. You need to look at Jesus Christ to save the United States. You need to look at Jesus to give America a spiritual awakening, a revival of sorts, that will bring back the United States. If you're looking for a man, you're looking for the wrong thing. It's just that simple. And that's our job, men. Those are the gaps that we need to fill. And I, you know, I want to emphasize as I sign off, the enemy is coming at you from all directions to take everything you hold dear. You know, We look at the spirit of rebellion in society to rebel against the biblical model of a lot of things, whether it's the family, whether it's marriage, whether it's educating our children, whether it's the clearly defined role of the sexes, any number of those things. The spirit of rebellion has one source in the scriptures, and it's satanic. You know, we are in a spiritual battle, and the primary tools in this stand in the gap that I covered today, those primary tools are spiritual. Men, get in your Bibles. Don't trust it's coming from the pulpit. Don't trust that. Get in the Bible yourself and study it. Get a good dictionary. Get a good concordance. Get in there and study it. Teach it to your families. Understand that the eternality of the soul is what God is interested in, more so than the temple preservation of of the United States, the world, or anything else. God is interested in the eternal. The battle is a spiritual one. Get in the Word, get on your knees, and get in the fight. This is Chaplain Tim signing off. I'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Chaplain's Chair. If you enjoy the podcast, I invite you to leave a comment and review on the platform you're listening from, or visit www.thechaplainschair.com and leave a comment there on the Facebook page. And you can help grow this podcast by sharing it with your friends on your favorite social media platforms, and I thank you for your support.